Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, worshiping with us here this morning in our sanctuary. I like the way Ted put it, for those of you who are in this house, and we're welcoming all of you who are in your house, and uh, that you are worshiping with us from home. We want to welcome all of you uh, to our time together this morning as well, and we are grateful for your attendance today. And I want to thank Wesley for filling in for Will while he and his family are away on vacation. Thank you, Wesley, for leading us in worship this morning. Yeah. We are so appreciative of all the talent that we have in this church family, and we are really, really blessed with it. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them, turn with me once again to the book of Psalms and to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Today, on this Sunday before Thanksgiving... On a Sunday in which we will also observe the Lord's Supper together, I want us to look at what I believe to be a truly amazing psalm, the text of which our choir just sang for us in Psalm 24. Now, Psalm 24 is the third in a trilogy of psalms um, that I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that present for us a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who serves as our Good Shepherd. The first one was Psalm 22, and in that psalm we, we saw a picture presented to us uh, by David of Jesus as our suffering shepherd. He is the one who willingly came and died on the cross for our sins, and he rose victorious from the grave so that he might defeat death, hell, and the grave for us. And so in Psalm 22, Jesus is presented for us as our suffering sir, uh, shepherd. But then in Psalm 23, we looked at the Lord is who is the shepherd there, he is our satisfying shepherd. He's the one who gives us everything that we need, that there's nothing that we lack because of what the Lord Jesus provides for us. And so our cup overflows and he leads us even into uh, his eternal home that he has prepared for us because he is our satisfying shepherd. So we have the suffering shepherd in, in Psalm 22, the satisfying shepherd in Psalm 23, and now this morning we come to Psalm 24. And in this this psalm, we are presented really with the sovereign shepherd. He is the, he is the mighty shepherd. He is the victorious shepherd. He is the one who will reign in majesty and glory forever. And this psalm really pre presents that to us very clearly. It's a magnificent psalm, uh, one that is certainly worthy of our contemplation, one that I believe should appropriately elicit praise from us at a time when we set aside a time for us to give thanks to the Lord for all of his blessing. This psalm should drive us to such a, a heart of thanksgiving. And it should also draw us into a time of worship, worshiping our sovereign shepherd together. So well, let's read it together. It, it is Psalm 24. As you'll see there, the title says it is a psalm of David. And it begins this way. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. The world and all those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord 
strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your just for your blessings upon our lives. This week of Thanksgiving is a time when we really ought to stop and to count our blessings. We ought to really give, give thought to all the ways in which you have blessed us, even in the midst of what has been a year that has been difficult for many of us and challenging in so, so many ways. And yet, through it all, you have been faithful to your children. You have been faithful to us at this church. You have blessed us in ways that we could never have imagined otherwise. We want to stop and just give you all the glory and all the honor that you alone are deserving of. And Lord, most importantly, I pray that you draw us back to the foot of the cross and back to the, the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Savior who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I pray that this morning that, that our hearts would be drawn to Jesus Christ and that our hearts would truly elicit forth in thanksgiving and praise and in wonder and awe of all that he has done for us. We thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you have shown to us. We praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen. So I want to handle Psalm 24 a little differently than we handled Psalm 23. Psalm 23, we look maybe at a verse or a couple verses at a time. We really dug down deep into those verses and then we kept pulling back at the end as the camera just pans back to get a full picture of the, the psalm 23 sort of at the end. What I want us to do with Psalm 24 is kind of just the reverse. I want us to start with a panoramic view of the psalm and then just kind of keep narrowing our focus as we move along the trek of the day sermon. So to do that, what I want to do is present you kind of with a, with a sort of a, a background, if you would. And so that really is the first heading that I've given you on your, your outline this morning is I want us to talk about really what is the background of this, this psalm. Uh, this is a psalm of David as we see there at the beginning. But tradition tells us that this, this psalm was likely sung when, when David brought the ark of God up to Jerusalem. Now, we read about that really wonderful and celebratory event in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you want to write that down, you can go back and read it later for yourself. Um, what we read about there is an event that is similar to what I would talk about being like a parade Many of us will probably get up Thursday and watch the, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Well, this parade was a parade in which the Ark of God was being carried back up, up to, the, to Jerusalem, back to the, the place of honor among God's people. And it was accompanied by choirs and singers and, and people playing instruments of all kinds. Now remember that the Ark of, the, of God or the Ark of the Covenant was, was a wooden box that was a little over three feet long, a little over two feet high, a little over two feet wide. And it was, it was covered and overlaid with gold. It had cherubim up on top that spread their wings out over the top of that box. Inside it were the Ten Commandments, the two stones of the tablets were, had been placed there, along with, with Aaron's staff and, and some manna had been kept in there. And for the people of, of, of Israel, this was a most sacred piece of furniture because it represented the very presence of God among his people. Now, the reason this parade in 2 Samuel 6 was such a celebration was because many years earlier, the ark had fallen into the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines were the perennial enemies of the Israelites, 
and, and the Philistines had, had defeated the Israelites in battle and they had captured the ark and they had take it, taken it back to Philistia. But I want you to know bad things began to happen to them when they had that ark in their, in their presence. In fact, they would get up and, and they noticed that the, that the statue of their god Dagon, which was, which was really a, a, an idle form of, of a half man, half fish, they got up and they would find that that, that idol had fallen face down in, in their treasury of, of idols. And so they'd set him back up and the next day they found he'd fallen down again. This time he'd broken apart and they knew something bad was going on. And all the time, in the middle of all that, them holding on to the Ark of the Covenant, the people of Philistia began to develop tumors all over their body and they began dying. And they said, oh, we don't want to keep it in this city. We need to move it to another city. And when they moved the Ark of God to another city... Tumors began to develop on those people and they began dying. And that continued and continued until the Philistine says, you know what, we don't want anything else to do with this Ark of the Covenant. We're going we're gonna to send it back to the Israelites. And so they put it on a cart drawn by two milk cows and they chased those milk cows away and that cart took that Ark of the Covenant back to the land of Israel, back to the city of Beth Shemesh. Now when it got back into the hands of these Israelites... There were a bunch of men who lived in Beth Shemesh who disobediently and foolishly did something they should not have done. They opened up the ark to look inside and the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 6 that the Lord God struck those men and killed them and the people lamented because the Lord God had struck them with a great slaughter. In fact, the men of Beth Shemesh asked this question, who is able to stand before, before this holy Lord God? You see, what this event tells us is that the people of Philistia and the people of Israel had come to get this idea that this ark was a dangerous thing. Eventually, the ark was taken to the house of a man named Abinadab who was charged with keeping it. And he kept it for many years. But when David became king, David wanted to move the ark and take it to the city of God, back to the holy city. He wanted to bring it there. And so he took 30,000 of his best men with him, and they went to Abinadab's house. They retrieved the ark. They placed it on a cart pulled by oxen, and the parade commenced as it made its way to Jerusalem. But then one of the oxen stumbled. And when he did, the, the ark of the covenant shifted on the cart. And a man named Uzzah, who was Abinadab's son, was there, and he stuck out his hand just instinctively to, to steady the ark on the cart so that it would not fall off. And so when he did, when he touched that, the Bible tells us that the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. You see, it was not only forbidden to look inside it, it was forbidden to touch it. The presence of God was not something to be trifled with. And Uzzah's death, as you might imagine, signaled the end of that parade. And the ark was then taken to a man's house named Obed-Edom. David is said to have first been angry, and then he became afraid. And then he asked the question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Now, I think about Obed-Edom. He's the man who, who the ark was taken to his house. I imagine he became nervous at this point. I mean, after all, everything that you looked at and touched and had anything to do with, it ended up in death. 
It was obvious that God's presence among his people was not to be taken lightly. But what's interesting is that the scriptures tell us that Obed-Edom, he was, he was blessed by God the entire time that the ark resided in his house. And the word of his blessing got back to King David in Jerusalem, in, in the city of David. And David said that encouraged him to go down and to get it again and to bring it back up to the holy city. And so in 2 Samuel 6 verse 12, we read that David took those 30,000 choice men. He sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. He danced before the Lord with all of his might. He shouted and he raised his voice above the sound of the trumpets. And he led a parade from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David and the ark was brought to Jerusalem. Now the reason why I tell you all that, that, that whole story there is because this story of the ark of the covenant is important because it really stands as the backdrop. It stands as the background of Psalm 24. Many have suggested <clears throat> that Psalm 24 was composed and sung as an antiphonal piece with choirs and soloists singing back and forth to one another as the ark of God was being taken to the holy city. And as David took it to Mount Zion where he had prepared a tabernacle for it until the temple would ultimately be built by his son Solomon. And so that's the situation. That's the background and it's important for us to know, and I want you to just let that hang out in your mind for a minute because now I think it's important for us to understand, okay, if that's what was occurring as a set that was a situation, then what's the content of this song? Why, is the, why was the song composed the way it was and what does it tell us? Because remember, the ark of God is, is, is uh, representative of the, the, the very presence of God among his people. And so as that presence makes its way into the holy city then we need to understand what David wants to communicate to us about the Lord in this psalm. And that's the next thing that I want you to see. The next heading there is simply the overview. It's the overview of this psalm. This psalm being sung as it was really tells us some very important things about Yahweh, about the Lord. If you want to write these down, you're welcome to do so and go back and study it for yourself. But verses 1 and 2 really tell us just how supreme the Lord is. Verses 1 and 2 tell us just how supreme the Lord is, how sovereign He is. Verses 3 through 6 tell us how holy the Lord is, how holy He is. And then verses 7 through 10 tell us how mighty the Lord is. This psalm tells us how supreme the Lord is, how holy He is, and how mighty He is. Now look with me at verses 1 and 2. David writes, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. What David tells us is that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord God and to no one else. In other words, everything and everybody are his. I love how Dale Ralph Davis has put it. He says, the earth and the world and the whole shooting match all belongs to him. Now, why is that the case? How, how, how can we come to that conclusion? Well, notice, it's because the Lord created it all. He founded it. He established it, David says. Those verbs tell you just how supreme and how sovereign the Lord is. He's the one who created it all and brought it into existence. And listen, the New Testament fills in the gaps for us, maybe what we didn't know here. The New Testament tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that God appointed Jesus Christ 
to be the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, what David is telling us here, who he's writing about, ultimately the writer of Hebrews tells us it's about Jesus. He's the supreme one. He's the one who brought it all into existence and everything in the world belongs to him. The Apostle Paul agrees with that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Concerning the Lord Jesus, Paul writes this, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see just how supreme? The Lord Jesus is, how sovereign he is. He spoke it into existence. It all belongs to him. The earth and the fullness thereof all belong to the supreme Lord Jesus Christ. That's how supreme he is. David wants us to know that, but he also wants us to know how holy the Lord is. That's what we come to in verses 3 through 6. And what I want you to do for just a moment is put a pause on that because I want to come back and drill deep into those verses in just a second. Verses 3 and 4. But those verses really tell us just how holy the Lord is. But before we get there, jump over with me to the last set of verses, verses 7 through 10, because there David communicates to us just how mighty the Lord is. I told you he communicates how supreme and how holy, and in 7 through 10 he tells us how mighty the Lord is. I mentioned earlier that during this parade in which the ark makes its way into the city of David, there were... There were various choirs that would have sung back and forth to one another along that parade route. And, and like our choir sometimes does, we have the choir singing and there's a soloist up front who sings and, and sometimes he sings a question and the choir answers it. That's really what's taking place, I believe, here in verses 7 through 10. If you can imagine it this way, there's a, the choir is singing and telling uh, the world, listen, the, the, make, open the gates so that the Lord can come in. And then there's someone on the inside asking a question and then the choir responds. Notice how this works. Verse 7, the choir sings this, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting door, and the King of glory shall come in. And then the soloist, he represents the inhabitants who are on the inside of the city gates and he sings a question in verse 8 and says, Who is this king of glory. And then the choir responds to the question with the answer in the last part of verse 8. It says, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. You see how that works? It's a, it's a, it's a declaration of the choir. It's a question by the person. And then it's an answer by the choir. The same thing happens again in the last part, the last two verses. The full choir sings, lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. And that's followed by another question from the soloist. In the first part of verse 10, who is the king of glory? And the choir answers again in the last part of verse 10, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. What I really want you to zero in on and think with me for just a second about is the answers to the questions. Who is the king of glory? Well, the choir answers with these phrases. He is the Lord, strong and mighty. He is the Lord, mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king. Of glory. Do you see how David is pointing us to just how mighty the Lord is? Um, he wants us to, to see that. I, I mentioned Dale Ralph Davis earlier. I just love how he puts things. He, he puts things in, in ways that, 
I can understand. And I need that sometimes. Um, I love what he says about these verses. He says, do not allow those who only want to speak of a Jesus meek and mild to rob you of the manly, virile comfort of having a God who is mighty in battle. According to Revelation 19, Jesus is the king of glory and he will come as a warrior at the last. And as we've been studying in Psalm 23, we know that he is our protective and defending shepherd. He is the one who has both a rod and a staff. He will defend us from the enemies who are coming from without, and he will protect us even from ourselves. And so Davis puts it this way, you have no comfort if the king of glory is a wimp who reeks of hand cream. You only have solace if he is your defender in the thick of war. Do not let the Jesus meek and mild rob you of the manly warrior that Jesus Christ is and will be. So, the first couple of verses of this psalm point us to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus and then the last four verses point us to the might of the Lord Jesus. Now what I want us to do for the balance of our time is drill down in verses 3 and 4 because there we see just the holiness of the Lord Jesus. Notice the question that is asked in verse 3. It's two questions, really. Same point. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? Really, the question is, who may enter into the presence of the Lord? That's really the question David wants to get to. Now, here's where knowing the background of this psalm actually comes in to our advantage that we looked at earlier. Because remember, this psalm was being sung by choirs who fresh in their memories was the death of Uzzah who had stuck out his hand to stop the cart, or stop the, the, the ark from sliding off the cart. Fresh in their mind would have been the slaughter of all of the men who had looked inside the Ark of the Covenant. Fresh in their mind would have been all of those Philistines who had died, who had developed tumors and, the, and, and had died because of those. Remember also that David himself had questioned only a few months earlier, how will the ark ever come to me? The people of Beth Shemesh in their fear had asked, who is able to stand before the holy Lord God? That's really the same question being asked again and again and again. Who may enter into the presence of Almighty God? I want you to know that's what's on David's mind here in verse 3. And in light of everything that had happened to the ark, who, who could possibly come near it? Who would be able to come to the presence of God so holy as Yahweh and ascend to his holy hill? Beginning in verse 3, I believe we see a lot of weight carried in those questions and they alert us to the next heading that I want you to see. From a general perspective, what, what verse 3 tells us is, is there's a problem. There's a problem in this text. You see, the question that David asks is an incredibly important one. He spends an entire psalm asking this. Psalm 15 Starts with this question. Who may ascend to the, how, to the holy... He's asking the question, who may come into the presence of the holy God? He spends four more verses telling us the attributes of one who may do so. He describes what a righteous and holy life looks like. You can go back and read Psalm 15 for yourself. But what I want you to know is the same thing that he's asking here in verse 3. Who may ascend into the holy hill of God? Who may stand before him? 
Who may enter into the presence of God? And in verse 4, David answers it in one verse and he says this. You want to know who can go there? Do you want to know who can enter into the presence of God? It is this one. He who has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. First of all, clean hands and a pure heart. That means that such a one has to be both clean inside and outside. Now, do you remember what happened when Jesus came and he interacted with the religious leaders of his day, particularly the Pharisees? Do you remember the, the interaction between them? Because the Pharisees were really good at ticking off boxes. They were really good at coming up with a list of rules that they needed to obey. They were really good at finding out all the things that they needed to do in order to look holy from the outside. And so Jesus tells him, look, here's your problem. You like to shine up the outside of the cup and clean it up to where it looks really good, but the inside of the cup is still filthy. Jesus was only confirming what David says here. You want to know who can enter into the presence of holy God? Only he who has clean hands but a pure heart. They go together. You can't have one without the other. You can, but that doesn't satisfy the demands of a holy God. Furthermore, notice that David tells us that those who may approach God in his holy hill must be ones who have not lifted their souls to an idol. He or she must be someone, in other words, who, who does not have divided affections but rather must be devoted singularly and completely and without hesitation to the Lord God and the Lord God alone. And then David goes on to say that such a one must be someone with integrity. In other words, their speech must be true. They must not lie. They must not swear false oaths in order to gain an advantage over someone else. Their words must withstand scrutiny. Now, when you take all of that into consideration and David asks who in verse 3 and the answer that is given to us in verse 4 tells us that one who may come into the presence of God is only one whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure, whose affections are undivided and whose words will stand up under scrutiny. Now do you see what the problem is? Here's the problem. Who can do that? Who of us? can say, I have fulfilled all of that. That's, been, that's, that's an accurate representation of me. That's a, that's a standard for which I have been able to, to live up to. None of us can. It's an impossibly high standard. None of us can say that we have lived that way all the time, every day, without fail, having never taken a day off, an hour off, a minute off, a second off. None of us can say that. As one preacher has put it, if this is the requirement for worship, if this is what we must be in order to ascend into the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place, then none of us really qualifies. None of us. None of us will pass muster. That's then what leads me to the fourth and final heading of the psalm, though it draws us to. Notice it with me. We've looked at the background. We've looked at the overview. We've, we've witnessed the problem. That this passage presents, now finally notice with me the answer. You see, what we've been driven to is the crux of what the scriptures teach. Which is that none of us, not a single one of us, can approach a holy God of heaven on our own merit. But there is one who can. There is one who has. 
His name is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He has clean hands. He has pure, a pure heart. He lived a completely blameless and upright life. His affections were never divided. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 4 verse 14, we read that the Lord Jesus was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. According to John 1 verse 14, he was full of grace and truth. According to 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23, no deceit was ever found in his mouth and he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Jesus Christ alone has met the requirements that are necessary to enter into the presence of holy God. You know, as I read and as I studied this passage, I could not help but be reminded of the scenario that we read about in the book of Revelation. John the Revelator was caught up, as you know, into the, into the heavens where he was able to see and, and view all kinds of things and he was able to write these things down. And in Revelation 5, verse 2, John says this, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. You see where the problem is? There's the problem. Who is able to do it? The answer is no one. And he says in verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus Christ is the answer. When we ask who, the answer always brings us back to Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is the answer to our problem. None of us are worthy. None of us have clean hands and a pure heart, but he does. And that is the greatest news possible for you and for me because according to the scriptures, he came to make you and me qualified to enter into God's holy presence. How did he do that? James Johnson puts it this way, although Jesus Christ was pure, he became sin for us as he carried our sin on the cross. He died and rose again so that our stained, guilty hands could be washed clean and our impure hearts could be purified. Christ came to wash us and purify us from the guilt that stains us and keeps us from coming before God who is like a consuming fire. Jesus Christ has done this for us through his death on the cross. Let me say to you once again this morning, the only answer to your problem is Jesus Christ. He alone takes away our sin and replaces it with his righteousness. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And it is my duty-bound privilege and responsibility to declare to you this morning that good news. But along with that good news, I must also clearly declare to you that if you have never humbled yourself before Jesus, if you have never confessed your sin and placed your unconditional and unreserved trust in Him as your Savior and as your Lord, then you cannot and you will not enter into the presence of Holy God. The Bible tells us that apart from Christ, Every single one of us stand condemned to die in our trespasses and our sins and that for an eternity we will bear the full weight of the guilt of our sins in a place called hell. That awaits every single one of us. But the good news, 
The answer to our problem is that Jesus Christ offers us grace and mercy. By his death, he satisfies the wrath of God against your sin and against my sin. And by his resurrection, he offers us life everlasting and full of joy. And therefore, I plead with you this morning. I plead with you. Look to Christ. Come to him. Flee to him. Run to him. He is the only hope that you have. He's the only hope that I have. I love what Spurgeon has written. He says, the Lord Jesus has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as a forerunner for those who trust him. Follow in his footsteps and rest upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven and you shall ride there too if you trust him. question posed by this text is who may enter and the answer we come to is only those who have been united by faith to the supreme to the holy and to the mighty Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again and listen if you have trusted in him if you can with honesty and integrity of heart say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then let me say to you above all else, that is your number one thing for which to be thankful for this Thanksgiving season. Absolutely, you need to thank the Lord for the goodness He's given to you for your health, for the food that's on your table, for the family that you have, and for all the other things. You need to spend time counting your blessings. But brother and sister, let me tell you, the very first blessing that you go before the Lord is thank Him that He saved a poor sinner like you who could not save yourself. Jesus Christ has done that. That is the number one thing for which you ought to be thankful this Thanksgiving season. And it is that that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The requirement of clean hands and a pure heart reminds us that our only hope is in Jesus who does for us what we could never do for ourselves, who opens the way into the presence of God. Man, that's something to be thankful for. That's, that is the conviction that leads to the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if that is your confession, if your confession is that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then I invite you to take this cup that you've got there and I want to just caution you, those of you who are worshiping with us at home, you shouldn't have the same problem that many of us are going to have. Hopefully you've got bread already there or crackers where you can use them very close at hand. For those of us here, I just want to tell you the same as I did before. Be careful because the dry cleaners will tell you why you should be careful. There's a little piece of cellophane on the very top. Pull the thin piece of cellophane back first and it will reveal the wafer. And it will keep the juice still sealed. That's the best way to begin. We begin with this bread. I'll give you just a moment to get yours out. This, this, this piece of bread that we have, this wafer that is here, is representative of the body of Christ. When we eat it, we are reminded that the body of Jesus hung on a cross, brutally crucified for my sin, for your sin. When you see this, when you think of it, you think of the corporal body of Jesus and it hanging there on the cross. He gave his body 
for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. In this very simple meal that we observe together, we also drink of the fruit of the vine, in this case, grape juice. So be careful, you can pull that back as well. This little bit of juice here, red grape juice, is there to remind us that it is only through the shedding of blood that there could be remission of sins. You see, during the time of, of, of David and, and, and all the way up until the time of Christ, there's no way to count the number of bulls and sheep and goats that, whose lives were, were, were taken and whose blood was spilled upon the altar as a means by which people were hoping that their, their sins could be forgiven for a short period of time so that they might go in and, and worship into the temple and, and worship. It was required of them to bring a sacrifice and the sacrifice necessitated the blood. But when Jesus came, and was crucified on the cross, his blood was shed once and for all, and it accomplished everything that had been being done in, in, for, in the shadows for all of those years. Jesus completed com fully by his own death on the cross, and it is by his blood that you and I can be saved. It is only through his blood that we can be saved. And when we drink of this this morning, we realize that it is not actually his blood, but it is a reminder of it so that we might stop and we might think, Jesus did this for me. The supreme, holy, mighty Lord God came in the form of Christ and died on the cross so that my sins might be forgiven, which is why we stop at this very simple meal and we remind ourselves of just how important this moment is. And so, if that is your confession this morning. Take and drink. This passage forces us to ask, who may enter? He who has clean hands and a pure heart has not lifted his soul to an idol and whose speech is truth. That's not me. Therefore, my only hope is that there is one who has entered and has made a way for me to follow his footsteps. He has washed me clean by his blood and has saved me by the forgiveness that he offers. And because that is the case, then I can enter into the presence of God, not on my own righteousness, but in a righteousness that belonged to him that he has gifted to me. He took my sin upon himself and gifted me with his righteousness. And for that, 
All I can say is praise the Lord and thank you. If that's your testimony this morning, you have great reason to rejoice. But if it's not your testimony, I want you to know you still have a reason to rejoice this morning because the Savior still offers you grace and forgiveness for your sins even now. You stand condemned just as all of us do. But the Lord God in his grace and his mercy has extended you one more opportunity to respond to him by faith. And so this morning, I want to invite you to do that. If you're watching and you're catching this at home, maybe you were watching this at some point much later and you've just stumbled across it in some way. I don't believe in accidents and I don't believe in, in those things. I believe in the sovereign God who creates all things. So I want you to know, if that's the case, I make an appeal to you as well to confess your sins, repent of those, trust in Jesus Christ. If you would like to talk with someone about that, they're going to put a phone number on your screen, and you are welcome to call that number. You can leave a message there. It will be transcribed and sent as a text message to the pastors of this church. We would love to be able to talk with you. We'd love to be able to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ in a, in a very clear and compelling way, not in our attempt to try to manipulate you, but just to show you the truth so that you might have all of that. Would you call that number and let us know so that we would know how to be able to minister to you? There's nothing that we would love to do more than that. If you're in this room and you have those same questions, I want you to know, Pastor Ted, myself, Pastor Dave, there's others who are here who will be glad to pray with you. Talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. I'm going to be at this room in, in the room as you exit to the right this morning. Pastor Ted's going to be to the left. Just stop and tell us, hey, you'd like to talk to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We'd love to spend some time with you. Set up an opportunity to talk with you at a, at a later point. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing greater than to understand that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And there's no greater reason that we can be thankful this week than that. This is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Truly, Father, when we come before you, we come as weak people who have nothing to offer. We may, we may dress ourselves up in the finest clothes and make ourselves look important, but the truth of the matter is that we are weak people who are desperately in need of your salvation. And we are grateful that you have offered it to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us the love and the mercy that we need in order to be saved. Thank you for the word of your truth that we can read and study and be reminded of that and drawn to you even closer Thank you for the wonderful opportunity to observe the Lord's Supper as we have to be reminded of the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for us. Thank you for allowing us to assemble together as a people to lift our voices in praise and to bind our hearts together in wonder over all that you have done. So now I pray as we leave this place that you would be exalted in our lives, that we would live our lives for you and to your honor, and that you would be magnified Thank you for your blessings upon this church and upon this people, and we praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.